podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. What's up, you guys? Sean Rossap of Fightful. You're checking out the Ace Nation podcast. Hey, guys. I'm Sai. Welcome to Ace Podcast Nation channel which features podcast series on a variety of subjects we've got shows and series on mental health football films tv wrestling music and more including a brand new series on serial killers uh, we've had guests we have a new guest each week should i say uh, we've had footballers uh, an x-factor finalist actors actresses doctors medical professionals journalists podcasters writers and more uh, today we have a podcaster, an improv comedian. Over the uh, coming months, we've got some fascinating shows as well coming up with uh, horse racing blogger, another former footballer, as well as shows on bipolar, DID, and anxiety disorders, as well as mental health in sport. Episode four with ex Middlesbrough player Alan Moore, where he discusses his battle with mental health since career has ended. Uh, we've got two. A series focused on mental health, and I believe uh, I believe it's vital to get people talking about these issues. So we uh, like to get them out fairly regularly. We've also featured weekly shows on conspiracy theories, regular shows on serial killers, and monthly podcasts on films and TV. So uh, please check them out, share them with your friends, and uh, yeah, help us grow. So today I'm joined my co-host and co-creator of the very popular Shake Them Ropes podcast. You'll also find him on Fightful's post-pay-per-view shows. He, uh, you may have seen him on TV or dabbling in a bit of uh, comedy. You're reading uh, my Twitter bio. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, I'm very happy to welcome Mr. Jeff Hawkins to the show. Thank you for coming on, Jeff. You okay, I'm, mate? Here for, I'm here for the mental health and the serial killers. That's what I'm here for. No, actually, you can do a big thing on mental health and comedy because everybody's uh, twisted. Even the people you think are normal. Like, I, I remember just to go off on, on a tangent right off the bat, uh, everybody was saying, you know, oh, Jerry, Jerry Seinfeld would always come out and go, oh, I was never depressed. And, you know, I never had any hangups and I was always happy and stuff like that. And then, like, at the age of 43, he started dating a 17 year old, and you're like, Welcome to the club, Jerry. Welcome to the club. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think um, anything in like entertainment or sport, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it takes a big toll on your mental health because you, especially when you're starting out, because you're you're putting so much effort and work into whatever you're trying to do, and very little reward, very little name recognition. And you're trying to sort of find your way in these different things, um, which obviously, you know, it's the same for everything in it. But in entertainment and sports and wrestling, I think it can be quite demoralizing because uh, you spend a lot of time doing stuff and very little. Well, the, the, the reasoning for going into these types of things also, any kind of performances, you're looking for something that you're not getting, you know, either at home or you don't think you're getting. It could be all be in your head uh, in in some kind, you know. And, you know, for me at least, comedy, when I was doing it, was always my defense mechanism. Because I'd, I'd get beat up a lot because I grew up in a rather tough area of the country. And it was one of those things where it's like, 
you know, if you didn't know how to defend yourself physically, you, you definitely had to know how to defend yourself verbally. And that's how it became for me. And it was one of those things where it's like, I started insulting myself to get people away from me. And then eventually it's like, oh, I've learned how to insult people. Now I'm going to turn the gun on you. <laughs> and it was one of those things where it was just like, and then all of a sudden it just became like, you know, Jeff Hawkins put down artist and, and things like that. So it was like, okay, this is kind of cool. But, uh, you know, it also got laughs, which is what I wanted, which is, you know, it's like, ooh, yeah, la laughter to a comedian is a drug. And so the reason why so many depressed people are still depressed, even though they make some success in comedy is because once that laughter dies and that high, you're like, I'm not going to feel like this until I get the next one. And it's it's almost a come down feeling, almost like a a drug type thing where you're depressed, that you can't you can't feel like that all the time, and also as a comedian you can't always be on all the time either. So it, it it's it's a dual edged sword for a lot of people. Yeah, I think um, when you're involved in comedy, I think I often see people and they're like, "Oh, would you do a?" And someone will say, "Oh, I'm in comedy, or I write comedy, or whatever it may be," and it's like. Oh, tell me a joke. And it's like... Don't do that. That's what people do. I see it. We've seen it many times. And it's... It's like you say, it's like... There's one thing being on stage and doing a routine and getting laughs. And like you say, getting that high of having the laughs. And then there's another thing if you're socialising or you're having a few drinks. And then people are just like... Look to you yeah, as it's, almost like the the jester or the clown sort of thing. Yeah, it, it's it's the one area where you're expected to be able to apply your trade at the drop of a hat. And you know, mm. like for me, I you know when I was doing comedy a lot more than I am now, it, it'd be one of those things where it's just like, eh, I, I'm I'm fairly serious and and a little sanguine when when you know. When, when the lights are off, I, I do it, you know, for the performance aspect, but it's like, you know, you never ask actors to do monologues. You don't ask English teachers to uh, diagram sentences. But if you're a comedian, tell me a joke, because it's always one of the things where it's a gunfighter mentality, even within comedy. But, you know, without it, it's like, OK, I think I'm funnier than you. I'm going to oh, if you can't tell me a joke right now, I'm going to prove I'm funnier than the comedian. Look at him. You know, it's, and you're just oh, like, boy. God. It's a mental drain at times. You're just like, I'm just trying to have fun at this party, guys. I'm not trying to be the life of the party. And there are people who, who want to do that, but I, I'm not one of those. There's, um, I always remember when I was, I must have been about 19, quite as young, just a young pup. And then I went to like a, a black tie, you know, like dinner and stuff. I was very, very drunk. I uh, had a few before we got there. And the comedian come on. And of oh. course, I thought I was clever and shouted something out. And he just ruined me for about an hour. Because like what people forget, especially when they've had a drink, is like these comedians, they do it for a living and they do it every night, a lot of them. And I thought I was very clever. I can't I don't think I said anything particularly, you know, offensive. It was just something stupid. And every single joke he just took back to me. Every time I got up to go to the bar or go to the toilet, he would draw attention to me. Oh yeah, and, uh, yeah. But then, and I, I always look back at that now because when I watch like either comedy live or a DVD or something, and I hear the people shouting out, it takes me straight back to that 
because there's always people who think that they can out comedy the comedian on stage. Yeah, that's kind of the difference between stand up and improv. Improv, you don't get a lot of that, but I'll, I'll bring this into wrestling as well because you hear this a lot about how. Well, the crowd just kind of took over the place. And the reason why comedians have to do that, the comedians have to destroy you if you are heckling, because that is their domain and their performance. And if the audience is getting more entertained by the people in the crowd than they are you, then they're going to be egging that guy on instead of paying attention to you. And and that's what what's so funny. Like, like I, I heard forgot what wrestling show it was but like they let the crowd dictate what the wrestlers were doing and they were very upset at the people's reaction i'm like you're the performer it's up to you to you know establish dominance out there as opposed to letting them dictate how you're doing um and i've also never been cool enough to be invited to a black tie affair so i'm kind of jealous of you uh, it was uh, it was a cricket uh, cricket <laughs> cricket end of year sort of thing it was a <clears throat> Oh, it's a good time. Do they have? Do you play? Do they have cricket in uh, America, Jeff? Uh, n- only club team type stuff. It we're more of a baseball crew. Yeah, think. yeah, yeah. I wasn't even sure if if they if it was you know if it was a thing there to be honest. But uh, okay. So, as soon as we just got into comedy starting, I am a, like I'm a huge comedy fan. I yeah, okay. uh, I don't go to go to watch. I like like really like stand up, and I used to go and like watch quite a lot and watch like amateurs and you know just in pubs and clubs as well as sort of the bigger shows i got quite a dry dark sense of humor but a lot of that sort of dark comedy is slipping away a bit now over the last couple of years compared to where it was perhaps 10 years ago um is there any sort of comedians which you enjoy Currently, like stand-up comedians, which on the sort of. I think there's a lot of good. I think there's a lot of good craftsmen out there right now. I I just comedy's in a weird place right now, especially socially and politically, where there's not a lot of things you can really make fun of, which is kind of the essence of it, because everybody kind of takes their sacred cows a little too seriously. You know, there used to be a time where we could laugh about our differences and now it's just like, well, no, we're holding on to our differences, you know, very clean. But I mean, there's still plenty of people who get good through. I mean, John Mulaney's great. Um, I think Ali Wong's pretty good as well. I haven't watched yeah. a lot of, of recent, recent standups. I mean, the, like there weren't many people from my generation that quote unquote hit it huge. Um, you know, like like when I was doing open mics in Virginia, Pat Oswalt was one of my MCs, and I, I think he's brilliant. I I, th- I think that guy takes those little idiosyncrasies and can make them. But right now, where in the states where it, it's very heated politically, there there's something called clapter, and it, it, it's 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 more dogmatic than funny, where you're trying to get the audience to applaud at what you think rather than trying to make them laugh. And I think it's really, you know, and especially, you know, with with guys like Louis C.K. and his issues. And like like we said before, comedians aren't (laughs) mentally straight people for the most part. You're going to get a lot of these. I mean, the things rumored about Louis C.K. were fairly well known in the comedy community. You know, that he had some 
idiosyncrasies with women and and sexually. So it, it's not you know when, when that came up, I was just like, yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah, comedians don't get along well with people for the most part because they're usually not good with interpersonal relations and they're using that a lot of times as their filter on how they see life and how they're getting material and things like that. But I mean, it comes and it goes, you know, you had so much of comedy cannibalized by TV sitcoms where if you had a good seven minute set, you you had a development deal at ABC or CBS or something to that effect. But I mean, you know, I, have you seen the, are you familiar with Hannah Gadsby? If I say that name, no, I don't think I am. No. Uh, I believe she's Australian. Um, comedian. She she kind of did this anti-comedy special that, you know, it was more one-person show slash social relevance thing rather than ha-ha, set-up, punchline, set-up, punchline, where she was just kind of being cathartic. And you're seeing a lot more of that in comedy. And it's it's one of those things where, you know, social relevance is great, but you still gotta you still got to make them laugh, even if you want to make them think. And and that's and we're 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 getting that line, especially in film comedy as well. Film comedy to me is at its lowest point in a long time because instead of worrying about story and about being funny, we're worried about things like you know social relevancy and you know do we have the they're looking for the criticism of the film rather than concentrating on the story. You know, do we have enough female protagonists? You know, have we insulted anybody? with any of our jokes or anything like that? Do we have a good theme for people that, I mean, what, what's the social relevancy? What's the social construct as opposed to, you know, here's a story, you know, about a guy trying to date a girl, blah, 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 blah. You know, they're, they're worried about a lot of that stuff now, especially in the studio system. Maybe not so much the artists because the artists are, are the artists, but you know, it, it's hard to tell these stories because you have, you know, you have standards and practices and you you just have general studio heads worried that there's going to be a backlash over something. And it's it's understandable because there's millions of dollars at stake. Yeah, yeah, I can I can imagine it's quite a stressful little uh, uh, like a stressful job being like in charge that, of like you've a, seen Animal House, right? Yeah. Animal House could never get made. Now, no, there's a few never. though, isn't there? Back uh, back in the day, with comedy films, which just wouldn't even get through the door. Now, um, is there any like British comedians that you like? You know, I loved the the original Who's Line. Um, I love I love their like The Office to me. I never watched the American Office because I because lo- I thought the British Office was so brilliant because of its yeah. use of. Because of its use of pathos. And that's, I like that stuff in my comedy. I like it to be funny, but I also like it to be, you know, that kind of tinge of sadness. I, I, I think uh, Ricky Gervais has kind of, kind of gone over the line in terms of cringe comedy now, though, where everything's kind of cringy. But I, I laugh at a lot of stuff. You know, Black Adder, Monty Python is still a huge point of reference for me. Um, you know, Fry and Laurie. Are, are fantastic yeah, yeah no i love i love that kind of dry esoteric brilliant type of thing my my improv partner out here uh directed a film with matthew barry and and i had not been familiar with him up until it's, it's a small film called angry white man and it was a huge get at the time and this is before barry blew up with you know things we do in uh i forgot the name of that 
vampire thing he's doing now. But uh, you know, it it um, I. I I go towards the British com- comedies, but I think so- sometimes they're too dry for my taste. Yeah. Um, but I like them more than, say, American comedies quite a bit. Especially now. It's, uh, it's funny you should say that about The Office, because uh, I'm exactly the same. I've never watched one episode of the American version, whereas the the British version, I remember watching it each week, and it was one of these, one of the, my favorite comedy sort of sitcoms ever, and like you say, it was the the cringiness, but it wasn't too like in your face. It was quite subtle, mm-hmm. and it had that you know it, it was relatable as well. You know, like I think at the time I was working in like an office, which was very similar. It's just like a group of people, and they're very much just looking forward to the weekend, uh, and. Yeah, I didn't have much interest in watching the American version, although I have heard that it's pretty good. One um, of the I one of the like... drop down funniest bits, if you've if you've ever seen uh, Life is Short. Yeah, yeah, I think I have. Yeah, with the the, the, um... the improv scene with Liam Neeson is just is just fantastically. I mean, that is just fall down because I I do improv class teaching, or I used to, and. Um, <laughs> that that would be people's instincts to ruin a scene pretty much <laughs> is you know full blown yeah i have full blown aids oh god really did you just do that in a scene did you just drop that deuce in there but here it's just hysterically funny because he can't believe a brilliant actor like liam neeson is doing such terrible terrible improvisation <laughs> what was the um what was this there was a series which was unscripted, like a comedy series. Oh, what was it called? The Curb Your Enthusiasm. Uh, Cur- Curb Your Enthusiasm. That's great. It? It's I one can't... of my favorites. See, I've ne- I've I've watched like one or two. My friend mm. is obsessed with it. He just can't. He's always constantly telling me about it. So is that that's completely unscripted and improvised? Is it, uh, or do they just give him like no, a, they, a no? No, it's, 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 it's like he'll have bullet points for where he wants to go. Um. Some of it devolves a little quick because they're screaming so much and they're always so angry. And, it, you know, it can be it can be grating if you watch it like if you binge watch Curb Your Enthusiasm, you'll just get tired of these nasty people yelling at each other. So you kind of have to spread it out. But no, he he, he goes with uh, I mean, because Larry David's a great writer, so he has his beginning and end and where he wants to get to on his show and also within each scene he has where he wants to get to in terms of bullet points and things like that. But but for the most part, the rest of it's improvised, yeah. yeah I, I think I might check that out again because, I, he, like I say, every time I speak to him, he, he's constantly going on about it. The, um, so, like you say, you've done quite a lot of sort of uh, improv comedy. How is improv comedy different to stand-up other than you know, the lack of sort of script, if you like? Um, stand-up is, is more reliant on wit it, uh, and your personal wit and, and things of, of that nature. Whereas improv is more when it's done in terms of long form improv, it's more done on the natural progression of this. It's more acting than stand-up is. And actually, if you try to be funny in improv, a lot of times versus say aggressive within the scene, if you try and be funny, it's going to fall flat. 
because it looks like you're going for the joke and it, and it'll just kill a scene. Whereas you have natural heightening and relationships and comedy that you find out of that in, in improv. Um, you know, and also it's one of those things where if you, if you take an improv class, you have, you instantly have eight to 10 friends instantly because it's all reliant on group mind and, and things like that. So it's a little bit more of a, you know, it, it has its own downfall, but it's a little bit more psychologically uh, healing than, than say, stand-up, which is more of a gunfighter mentality where you walk into a room, especially like at an open mic, where you'll probably, if you go to more than one open mic and you see the same people, you'll hear the same seven minutes worth of jokes usually because they're trying to work them out. They're trying to see if they're funny, but they're not necessarily getting the best feedback because it's nothing but comedians, but they also don't want to necessarily laugh at you because then it reflects badly on them. Whereas improv, it's a little bit more, it's a little less competitive unless you get into a big theater system, like an upright citizens brigade or something where you're looking for stage time and hopefully agents and you weren't really want to make it big or something, but you know, just for day to day stuff, if you take an improv class, it's fun and you make friends. So if you're, I mean, if you're sitting on the couch lonely, you know, go, go take a level one improv class. You'll, you'll meet people. Yeah, I think I don't think I I personally I don't think I'd ever be able to do it. I just haven't got the 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 confidence to hold myself together and speak I'll tell to you, it. I'll crowd. tell you something that I'll tell you something that blew my mind. The best people in our improv class weren't the people doing it for improv as a career or as an acting thing. It was the people who came in from like the business world and oh, I just wanted to take an improv class to get better communication skills or something like that. And you just because they're not out there trying to be funny, they're just out there trying to play whatever's natural in there. And you just watch them and you go, God, you're so much better than these clowns over <laughs> here trying to make everybody laugh. I love you. Please keep doing this. And you know, those are all also always the first people to leave because it's just like. Yeah, I can't spend all this time at a bar drinking with you. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, you know, if it was a, so say you were at like a bar and it was a, like an improv uh, open mic sort of thing. So, do they just, uh, like, people just shout out like words or phrases and then you've got to go from there or? Yeah, usually you'll, you'll, I mean, for, for your average improv show, you'll have five to seven people up there. They'll take a suggestion from the audience, usually a word or a phrase or like one of my things, a line of poetry. And then they'll just, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll do some sort of usually pretentious group scene <laughs> trying to get material and stuff. And then they'll start doing scenes based on, you know, the suggestion and things like that. So, I mean, that, that's generally huh. how that goes. And, and it's usually it's usually not terribly interactive. There is st something called short form, which is like party games, which is like the whose line is it anyway style of improv, where it's like you you're only doing a short scene so you can go for the joke there. That's a little bit more stand-up-y, I think, because you get your certain moves that you can do in each game that you know are always going to work. Um, and that's way more audience participatory. Yeah, I, I um, whose line is it anyway? I used to love that was like I think that was one of the first sort of comedy programs I got into as like a kid where I would look out for when it was a next on because I like as a teen I think I was the first sort of comedy program where I didn't just watch it because it, it, my parents had it on on the TV or whatnot because in them in those days in UK you had four channels. And you generally had one TV in your house. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not like my kids today where they've got like a TV in their room and a tablet and a phone 
and all this sort of stuff. You had to watch what your parents were watching and like it. Yeah, that happened to me when I started watching wrestling as a kid <laughs> because I didn't. I mean, we had one TV, and at seven o'clock you had wrestling that was on 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 TBS, but you also had Star Trek: The Next Generation, and my dad was a was a Trekkie, so <laughs> it would be like. It would be a knockdown drag out as to who got control of the television sometimes. Yeah, so just before we go into wrestling, I wanted to uh, ask you, or just get onto some TV stuff actually. What uh, do you think of Black Mirror? You a fan of that? I don't like science fiction. I, I, okay. It's very odd. I'm not a big fan of science fiction. I'm not a big fan of fantasy. I don't under. I mean, I don't know why. I mean, I think it's probably been beaten out of me by being in Los Angeles and having so many... Mm-hmm. People who went ape crap over Star Wars so much, which was a film I enjoyed, but I never obsessed over them like they did. And just yeah. like I liked, like when Game of Thrones was out, I liked the books because they were like modern political theory type of things. And then when the magic and dragons came back, I just, eh, all right, fine. Because I always like, I play video games, but I cannot stand playing, um, you know, the, the, you know, the usual fantasy type games where you have wizards and warriors. And yeah, I, just think, yeah. I just think the spells are cheap ways out. I'm like, this guy yeah. can't fight. He's just going to propose a spell and make it all better. Well, then what's the use of me learning how to use this sword? If that guy's just going to put up a potion and, you know, make something, <laughs> it's like, screw that. Yeah. So I, so I never geared towards those types of, of shows. So I, I couldn't tell you anything about black mirror, to be honest with you. Uh, okay. See, um, I I was late to the party with Black Black Mirror. It was um, everyone was talking about it, and I didn't. I know start... the gimmick, and it's and it sounds fantastic. I mean, it sounds like a are... great series, but I just it's just not my tea. I, I just don't want to do it. I think some of them. There's a couple of episodes which I really enjoyed, and I was actually disappointed when they're only you know like an hour long or something because I wanted more. But then there's some where I'm just like, yeah, I can't watch this. So it's, I think it's a bit hit and miss. It's an interesting concept, and it's different. Very. So, you know, I, I, I like different. Um, so like for me, like for me, I get, I find more laughs in dramas that that mm. are just kind of, you know, that, like there's a show. There was a show out here for a number of years called Justified, which is based yeah, on, yeah. El, which is based on Elmore Leonard, and Elmore Leonard is hilarious, but. But some of the scenes in there were just criminals being inept and stupid and and just having Raylan Givens play the straight man to that and watching these morons try and be good at crime where and he just cracks wise. Hilarious stuff. I and I you know, I, I gravitate towards that far more than say your average American sitcom, which I just find I find the laughs are are unearned usually or or they're just not funny shows to me. That that's you know. But that also yeah, comes but, from just working in comedy so much that I just, I just, I just don't want to see comedy anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can definitely understand that. The, um, but I suppose when like sitcoms and even comedy films and shows is, they're always looking for the laugh and they're always trying to be funny. Whereas then when you get something like Justified or you know other dramas which have got sort of funny bits in, it's more natural. Yes. So it's more enjoyable. Yeah, like but The Sopranos I, is a hilarious show, if you ever watch yeah, that. And it is that's really the, good. And, and that's not set up punchline at all. That just comes from people's reactions to stupid things, usually. Yeah, and it's their, it's their, their reactions and their personalities and the way 
they deal with certain things and the decisions they make and their reactions to those decisions as opposed to trying to gear up for this punchline or looking for this scene or this funny scenario and I find yeah I'm similar to you by the sounds of it I much rather watch the Sopranos and watch it for the classic TV that it is but also get the laughs and the the scenes which stick with you afterwards so what um, what sort of TV shows do you watch watching at the moment <laughs> I am so busy with my day job most of my television watching is wrestling because of the, all the podcasts I do and anything that any free time I have, I like watching classic movies. I don't watch a lot of TV series. There's not, I'll still put on the Simpsons occasionally. Uh, Veep was very good while it lasted. That just ended. Um, Arrested Development, whenever they come out, I think still the early season, the early seasons were brilliant. The later seasons when they got to Netflix, not so much, but uh, you know, that kind of thing. But, but you know, as for current television, what's coming on, I don't know a whole lot because I don't have a whole lot of time to watch it. But I mean, the, the couple of uh, couple of episodes of The Good Place I watched were very, very good. I thought. Okay. And uh, did you say you watched Game of Thrones? Yeah. I did. I did because I because I had read the books, and I yeah. wanted to, you know I wanted to compare the two and, and and all those other things. And it's a shame. It's a shame they didn't have the budget at the beginning that they had at the end. Because they could have really done some stuff that they they cut out of the books in there. That, uh, but you know, it was a fun ride up until they up until. Because for me as a writer, I loved a lot of the rich dialogue and stuff like that. But you could tell that George R. R. Martin had created a world that he didn't know how to get out of, and he and that's and that's probably why. And I could see why he got writer's block. Writer's block is easy to get. And especially if you're getting so much pressure on yourself, hey, I gotta finish this. I gotta finish this entire world I've just created, and I have two books to do it, and I have no way to get out of this. But once they ran out of material from the books, all the dialogue became expository. We need to go here and do this, as opposed to character dialogue, driven dialogue. And you can tell the actual cutoff point when that happens because Tyrion becomes an absolutely useless character. Throughout the show, for the most part, you know, Stannis Baratheon becomes kind of a, a set piece. And when he was a deep and rich character, they start focusing on, you know, it, 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 Weiss and Benioff have their tropes and they have the things they liked. And you could have seen this in Lost as well when they did there. You know, they wanted to focus yeah. on they wanted to focus on the TV stuff, you know, the love story between the two main characters, you know. And, and they started writing it like a TV show. Oh, people might get mad if we kill off this character. And we need to find some convoluted way for this person to survive this, you know. And, and you're just watching it. And it became, a, became an uninteresting show towards the end, I thought. Um, you know, it was, still, it was still fun to watch. It just was far less interesting. Yeah, I, Lost is one of my it's one of my favorite TV shows of all time. That first season was amazing, um, and I think they wrote themselves into a corner. And I think one of the worst things they did was after the first series, the the writer or the director said, uh, "Well, you know, everyone was guessing what was going on," and they said, "No, it's not." Um, I've forgotten the words. Where it's in between heaven and hell, perjury. Uh, no, not perjury. purgatory. Purgatory. purgatory, sorry, then blank there. He said, right. no, it's not purgatory. Uh, purgatory, And then it kind of was. 
And I think <laughs> a lot of people dropped off in between. Um, but I really enjoyed it. Um, one of the best TV shows I've seen recently, and it's the best TV show I've seen in a, a while, actually, is uh, Chernobyl. Have you okay. seen that? I, I've, I, I started one episode of it, and I haven't had a lot of time to do it, but I, it's on my list because HBO does things really, really well, I think, overall, especially drama. So I, I really want to see that. I was um, I was surprised because going in, I was like, well, I know the story. I'm pretty well versed on what happened, and you know, I've seen a few documentaries. I've read some books about it. I kind of wasn't sure what I would get from it, but I was I was you know I was couldn't stop watching it, and it, you know, it was only five I think episodes, but I thought like Jared Harris in it was really really good. Oh, Jared but, Harris uh, I, is great, isn't he? Such he, a good he, actor. he was the best Moriarty. In that Sherlock yeah, oh, yeah. films. I loved him in that. I'll tell you what a lot of the problem with television is right now is that people will come up with high concepts and they'll have an entire season written out where beginning and the end, but they don't have five seasons, which is really kind of the what you want out of it. The one show yeah. that really came up with, when they had problems you know, going down the path was Breaking Bad because they had casting issues. And out of those casting issues came brilliance, came like the Gus Fring character, mm. which is one of the best characters in all of television, in my opinion. You know, the, the fast food restaurant guy who's actually a drug lord in his spare time from, from Breaking Bad. You know, yeah. a, a, sh a show like Sons of Anarchy had a great first season. Fantastic first <clears> season. <throat> Motorcycle gang. You know, you could tell because Kurt Sutter was on the writing staff of The Shield, and he came up with a little bit more of the grungier storylines on that. So you're watching this, and it's great. And the second season is okay, and then it fell off a cliff, and it's like they don't know what to do. Oh, we're going to go to Ireland. <laughs> All right. That's cool. And, then you know, they have a couple more seasons where, you know, they've lost their way. They really need to kill off the Gemma character. Because there's no way someone that evil could survive in this world. I mean, it was a little bit of my problem with the Walter White character, too, where it's like, things yeah. are just way too convenient for him to escape these types of situations. That was the same way with Gemma in, in Sons of Anarchy. And then they kind of got it back towards the end there, but it was just it was just such a mess there in the middle. And that's because it's like, you know, once we get this hit TV show, we don't have the roadmap anymore that we want. And we're trying to think of a roadmap as we go. And it becomes problematic for the storylines where they're all getting mixed up. And, you know, you can see issues with the continuity here and there. And the vision is kind of gone and you're just trying to, okay, I just need to get these episodes out on time for the network type of thing. Yeah, and I think that's largely a problem in the WWE at the moment as well. Is yeah. like, there's never any long-term plan. Whereas at least years ago, you knew, or they knew at least, where they wanted to go by the yeah. end of the year. So they would build towards that. They would build certain characters in the main story. They would build, you know, other characters who were going to get a push later on in the year, slowly up that way. But they just, it's almost like a lost art of long-term long storytelling. Well, um, they, well, they've also, I mean, part of that problem is their growth quite mm. frankly, because what happened was back in the 80s, you only had 
at most four pay-per-views. You had the big four. You had Survivor Series, WrestleMania, SummerSlam, and uh, the Royal Rumble. And you could plan, okay, WrestleMania is the end of our season. What do we need to do for the next year to get to our idea for what the main event should be next year for WrestleMania? And they would plot out the entire year. You'd have the superstar shows, and occasionally you'd have Saturday night's main events. And, and, and maybe and primetime wrestling which basically was kind of like a squash show, highlights of arena matches and things like that. It was a filler show. But for the most part, your television only took place on one hour a week plus a monthly hour and a half special. And now they have five hours a week to fill on primetime national television. And you can't really do week... I mean, you can't do long-term storytelling because there's no time to shut it all down and write a compelling script and come up with things for these characters. And also it's just the guy at the top who runs things. His thing has always kind of been like a student who procrastinates, writes a term paper at the last minute and gets an A and thinks that that's the way that he should always have to do things because that's how he's smart. And it's like, no, you, you need this kind of planning as opposed to see to the pants things. And so you hear these stories about scripts being rewritten while the show is going on. And that is insane to me, oh, especially as a, as a writer, it would drive me nuts. I, I, I interviewed for the WWF back in, I think, 99 or 2000. And back then it was, you, you were playing a game. You had a 50-50 chance of having a good interview just based on how they were feeling that day because they weren't sure if they wanted TV writers who weren't fans of wrestling or if they wanted wrestling fans, people who knew the product. Yeah. So so you kind of go and you pick your, pick your lane, and I picked the wrong lane, obviously, um, so I didn't get the job. I thought my packet was pretty good. A buddy of mine got, got the gig and only stayed for three months. And it's still in wrestling today, just not with the WWF. But it's it's one of those things where, you know, it, when people blame the writers, I go, no, you blame the showrunner. Blame yeah. the show because because there are plenty of people who have gone through that system who have great out of the box ideas. It's just everything about Vince's mentality on pro wrestling has always kind of been, and this is something Tanahashi from New Japan wrote in his autobiography. And I think it's brilliant. They're the McDonald's of professional wrestling. If you go to a McDonald's in Florida or if you go to a McDonald's where you live, I can get a Big Mac, and the Big Mac will be made exactly the same way with the same ingredients, and it gives me comfort to know that. That is what Vince McMahon has done to professional wrestling. He took away all these regional places and made it one set way of doing it so that even if you've never seen the WWF before and this is your only time during the year in, say, Butte, Montana, and you're getting a house show. You're going to see the stars. You're going to see everybody do their finishing moves. And it, it's going to be a fun time for the entire family. There, there's little things that have come up in Vince's life and that other things have said that I've taken as almost good ways to view the product. You know, like when, when Vince McMahon said in Beyond the Mat, we make movies. He really thinks that. Mm. And, and his upbringing... I remember from the Playboy interview was 1950 serials. And you could see he's kind of trying to run an old timey Warner Brothers style 
movie studio within the WWF. He casts leading men, he casts monsters, and he has a certain way he wants his leading ladies to look. And and he's he's casting those main roles to be his stars. And everybody else is kind of just contract players. Yeah. So so the question is, <laughs> is Vince McMahon out of touch? I don't know that he was ever in touch. That's that's the weird thing is is because the WWF was never my wrestling. It was never my thing to watch. And I think let, let me put you this way. Vince McMahon is the greatest marketer that there's ever been, especially in this thing. He can take a guy that's going to be a star, put the rocket ship to him and make him a star. Creatively, he's not that clever. That's the thing to me. Um, you know, all the stars from the nineties that we talk about, you know, your, your stone colds, your rocks, uh, people like that. Those came out of things that happened when those guys took a chance and found something. And then Vince McMahon put his rocket to them and they became stars. The undertaker is his, I will not deny him the undertaker or Hulk Hogan or any of those guys, those big kind of larger than life characters back in the eighties, the cartoon characters. Yes. The cartoon characters. And that's what he wanted for the times too. you know, just, you know, this family friendly type of product. But the Undertaker had to continually reinvent himself. He couldn't always be the dead man who, you know, had a big hat and did things from the graveyard. He had to be Biker Taker. He had to rewrite his own thing. He had to pitch things for him because Vince wasn't thinking about that. Vince was just thinking about the marketing, the marketing, the marketing, not whether or not the character had become stale or not. And that becomes a bit of a problem, I think, in today's WWE where the the people who work for Vince McMahon, the wrestlers and stuff, they desperately want to pitch things for their characters to make them fresh, to do things like this, to do things like that. And Vince Vince has, has the casting mode in his head where he just goes, well, I don't see you like that. Or, you know, that may, that may put you on a level that I don't see you at necessarily. So I think he kind of works against them if they go against his natural instincts. Yeah, one of my biggest frustrations with WWE uh, is that they, they stifle creativity. And uh, you look at the roster that they've got, including NXT, and they've got the most talented roster they've ever had. Yeah. The most but... guys, the most, the most creative, you know, if you, if they gave some of these guys their own bit of creative rope to do something with their character and gave them bullet points instead of a script so they could speak naturally like they speak rather or how they see their character speaking rather than having to memorize these lines for a 10 minute promo which opens the show every week i think you would see a different side to a lot of these guys and i think even the guy at the top who is their big face of the company in roman reigns i think he is one of the guys who suffered the most from that, because mm -hmm. I feel like if he was given a little bit of creative freedom and if he was able to cut his promos in a way that was more natural to him or to how he views his character, people or like the hardcore fan base, if you like, I don't think they'd be so against what they're doing with his character, but he's right. almost like the, the complete corporate pick. 
Well, I'm, I'm going to push back a little bit against this because I agree with you 100% in theory. If left to their own devices, maybe with a producer who's helping them, you know, w- with what they're saying and what they're doing, maybe an acting teacher of some kind, they most of these guys left to their own devices would be great and could create a great wrestling show. Vince McMahon doesn't want a great wrestling show. He wants a variety show. He, wa- he wants a sketch comedy show with wrestling in it. Yeah. So, so the things that that you're recommending would be great if you wanted, you know, like for me, wrestling is nothing more than talking smack and fake fighting, because I come from that era of burly guys who you were, you know, who you knew were hard drinking, hard living dudes who you never wanted to see in an alley, you know, like Harley Race and Dick Slater and Buzz Sawyer and Ric Flair and the Andersons, and you just you just thought they'd kill you if you ever got in the ring with them. And that's not what wrestling is today. Wrestling today is, you know, corporate mascots doing various things and, you know, people who can go out and do make-a-wish things for kids as opposed to... And there's nothing wrong with that either. It's just we kind of... We want something a little bit deeper than they're equipped to give us right now. And so we keep judging it against that standard, so to speak. And it's one of those things where we get so... like. There were years, like especially around 2012 to 2014, where Dave Meltzer, the Wrestling Observer, would be saying, you know what, if they would just do shows like New Japan, they'd be great. Well, New Japan does big shows a couple times a year. They don't do weekly television. And WWE crowds now have been conditioned, because that's the other thing WWE does outstandingly to its detriment almost, is they condition crowds on how to act. If you watch main event main events right now, um, you know, or pay-per-view main events. These crowds don't get into it until the first kick out out of out of a finisher. They have been programmed to know that that this match is not ending after the first finisher. Then they start to get into it. I mean, they're ahead of everybody, even the wrestlers, which is a problem. But um, oh, what was I gonna say? Yeah, he's he's conditioned them, and it's 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 just become it's it's become very stylized. And that's what he yeah. wants, but 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 a work rate federation would not get over. Like if you go no. to an if you go to an NXT takeover, and then you go to like a pay per view the next night, if they're both in the same city, you will have two completely different personalities in the crowd. The NXT crowd is more of your indie wrestling. You know, we just want to see good matches from the guys, and we're here to support, and everything's awesome, and fight forever, and all this other stuff. WWE crowds are casual. Casual, casual, casual. The kids love it. The parents are kind of into it. You know, the, they cheer for people you wouldn't think they'd cheer for. Like when I went to the Royal Rumble last year, I had a mother next to me who was just in love with Natty Neidhart. And I had never met a Natty Neidhart fan in my life. <laughs> and it was amazing. But like I, I went to WrestleMania in Dallas where a father had brought his kids. And all he wanted to see was the, the Dudley boys put a guy through a table. Yeah, they've conditioned these people. And so if you give them something that they're not used to, it's why the cruiserweights never got over on Raw. They were doing great matches on there, but they were never on TV. So nobody knew who they were. So people tuned out. it's, It's a you have to condition audiences to what they should like. And then you can start adding the things in with, within that, I think. And, and that's what WWE has done so well compared to almost every other wrestling company out there right now. 
Yeah, and I think uh, they, I suppose the question is, is will they need to change? Because yes. what AEW is doing is they are giving people the creative freedom to try things and do things, and they've done it themselves. You see it on Being the Elite. Some of it works, some of it's good, some of it is a bit not so good. But at the moment, the people are behind them. People, are, you know, for their big shows, they're selling out. I do feel like w, they've got a good TV deal, and I do feel like if, w, if WWE don't pay attention, AEW could start hot on uh, TV in the fall, and then there's suddenly WWE might have competition from a TV point of view, not in terms of you know size of the company, but from a TV ratings point of view, because the D- WWE ratings are just sliding. Yeah, I, I think I think what they need to do is they need to get get uh, they need to make more interesting people, quite frankly, because right now all the characters on WWE television are a catchphrase and a finishing move. Spot when they're off. doing when they're doing interviews, they're not terribly interesting. They're just talking about what they're about to do, or whatever. They don't have a lot of emotion into it. They're not feeling anything. They're not angry. They're not sad. They're not happy. They're all W Raw and SmackDown. If you watch them, are shows about office politics taking place at, at a wrestling show. It's the Muppet Show with office politics. Mm-hmm. It, it's I'm trying to be. I'm trying to be the most over guy in the face of the company so that Vince likes me. I'm not, tr- and see, back when I grew up, it was all about making a lot of money and winning a lot of titles and getting a lot of women and going out there and partying or being the toughest, baddest dude out there as opposed to, you know, oh, I'm, I'm so competitive and I want to be the most competitive person in the WWE. That's just crap. That's what turns me off of professional wrestling right now is that all these people are just, look, I want to be the face of the company. You know, I want my face on billboards, and that you know, no, I want to be rich. That 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 yeah. interests me. Uh, AEW to me has a too many cooks issue, in that they have yeah. they have three or four different visions of what they want professional wrestling to be, and they can't be all those things at once. I don't think, because you have the Joshi types, you have the really hard kind of strong style women's type wrestling, you have the ironic tongue-in-cheek comedy type of wrestling you have a little bit of old school with the Rhodeses in there you have a little bit of strong style and until and once you start mixing up those things like if you took the joshi women and start putting them in there with like a brit baker or something like that how would how how are you going to deal with that you know that's what interests me in terms Mm -hmm. of their presentation because i think tony khan and cody rhodes are kind of looking at it from an old school territory type of thing. The young bucks are a little bit too ironic for my taste, to be honest with you. Um, at times their style of comedy is kind of breaking the fourth wall. Everybody knows what wrestling is type of thing. I, I don't like that. Break the fourth wall type stuff in wrestling a lot because you can only use it sporadically for it to work. And I think they use it a little too much. And then Kenny Omega's, it's odd because I thought Kenny Omega was was made for the WWE. He yeah. is he is you know uh, sizzle over steak. It's flash. It's the video game culture type thing. You know pyrotechnics and 
costumes and and pageantry and and things of that nature. So I think, you know, for right now, it's a nice, uneasy alliance. It's just when they get to television, what direction is the television going to be every week? Because if they do that stuff like the librarian stuff, like I I almost did not buy that that second pay-per-view because of the pre-show. I was on the fence and I watched that and I just thought that was dumb. This is not the time. This is this is sports entertainment light, which was TNA's problem when yeah. they went up to it. They just wanted to be a, a another version of WWF, and people don't want that right now. I don't know if they want the pure on PWG, Pro Wrestling Guerrilla. For those who don't know, you yeah. know, work rate, work rate, work rate. They want the angles. They want characters. They want promos. I don't know if they want you know like Joey Ryan's inflatable penises coming out there though that that's what i don't know yet i don't know for a fact and i don't think they don't know that's the weird thing because they have all these they have a nice gumbo they have a night a lot of nice disparate ingredients there that they're putting into a pot now what's going to be the rue to bring it all together that's the question and i don't know what that is yet so i was saying similar to what you just said about there being too many cooks in the kitchen the other day and someone pointed out to me, they said, oh, no, no, it's fine, because the Young Bucks are going to run and book the tag team division, and uh, Kenny is going to do the women with Brandy, and Cody's going to do the, the men's singles division, and it'll all work perfectly. And I said, you, probably, or it might do, but what happens when they've got to book weekly TV, and then they've got to keep you know X, Y, and Z happy, they've got to book a compelling two-hour show, and they start, it didn't even need to be disagreeing, but just having different visions of what they want from their TV program. You need, it feels like there's too many people to make to well, book one show yeah. without and, there being issues. And how are, how are viewers going to react, you know, if you have like an old school type of angle between Cody and Dustin, like they did for that program, and then you follow it up with, you know, Japanese women in Freddie Mercury outfits and sailor outfits and things like that going tee hee hee and doing, you know, the 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 Asian schoolgirl uh yeah. you know, uh, uh stereotype and things like that. And then you 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 counterbalance that stuff with say Tessa Blanchard if she comes into AEW at any time. Who is much more of a I mean, how do you you know how how do you get past doing the women as cartoony and the tag team people as kind of the, you know, postmodern ironic spot fest guys or or something like that. You know, it's, I think you need something consistent within that in order to keep viewers. Otherwise viewers are going to be watching it going, okay, I'll stay for the sections I like and I'll tune out for the sections I don't like. Which is the problem WWE have got now is people will, watch the bits they want to watch. They will fast forward the rest. And I think that's a big part of why their viewers drop so much, you know, throughout the show. Because for me, like the the last month or so, the only thing which has been like must watch on Raw or SmackDown has been the Firefly Funhouse. Outside of that, I've been very much like, "Mm, it's all right. Like I enjoyed last week's Raw. It was really good, I thought. But Generally, it's quite meh. Whereas Bray Wyatt's Firefly Funhouse was something different. It was quite creative. There was a few ways they could take it. 
there was a lot of little Easter eggy type things, if you like, if you paid attention. So, so you almost, if you pay attention to the actual what's going on in the background and the sides, they reward you. Yeah. And that's what I want from my TV programs. Yes, that's is, what everybody wants from television programs. And, and that's, that's a major issue with WWE is that they're not giving, they're not giving you storylines or plots or anything that pay off from week to week to week that build, that build tension or heighten stakes or anything to that effect. They give you matches to fill the time. Mm. And the mat and somebody beats them in this match. Oh, and then the next week the other person wins by cheating, and the other person wins, and the other person wins, and we'll have the match at the at the uh, at the pay per view, as opposed to I beat you this one week with interference, and then the next week the other person beats the other person by interference. Okay, we need to stop this interference somehow. Let's have a cage match instead. Right after the pay per view, they announce we're going to have a cage match. And then they just beat yeah. each other for three different weeks. And you're like, what, what, is, what is the point of me watching this if I've already seen the match? I mean, they don't keep, they don't do blood feuds at all. They don't do things where they're, they're, guys are so angry and they're cutting promos on, on each other, just cutting each other to bits verbally that, that everybody's, you know, like in the UFC where you just go, I got to see this fight right now. Yeah. They don't do that anymore with anybody. No, and they don't man. save. They don't, yeah. It's, they don't save big fights either. Mm-hmm. Like they give away everything on TV all the time, and it's just like it drives me insane because they've got some really big matches that they could do, and big you know people who are popular like Ricochet and AJ Styles, who people want to see wrestle, whether they're casual or hardcore fans. Their people are interested in seeing them wrestle, but to get to go to that next level particularly for the sort of more casual casual viewer, to go from wanting to see them wrestle to being emotionally invested in what they do, you've got to develop their characters and give them a storyline arc. Well, they have um, to feel something. The characters have to feel something, and these characters do not feel anything. They are there to do their job. I have been told I have a match at this time. I mean, nobody's... When was the last time I mean, you saw anybody really get angry at something somebody said? or happy or anything like that. They're just like, you know, they, they kind of, they kind of do the, uh, what, what do I call it? Play to the back of the room reactions in the ring where it's like, Oh, and they're going real big with yeah. their reactions or anything, but nobody ever genuinely feels angry that they lost a match because they know they have another one next week, probably against the same guy. Yeah. It frustrates me massively because they've got so much talent and really good creative guys there um and like people like matt hardy like you feel like they should be tapping into his creativity what was the whole point of buying the intellectual property of broken matt hardy from tna if you weren't gonna use it and they even did the um you know they did the halloween special and when they did that i thought finally they're gonna do it right they didn't even need to do it as a like a weekly show, a I'll, weekly character. Just do these specials every month, one a month. I'll, just. I'll tell you something. If you want, if you didn't watch anything on television and you just watched the stuff that WWE.com puts out, this is an outstanding wrestling company. Because like there are skits on there that are la- that they're just doing on their own that are laugh out loud funny. Like the Iconics are comedy yeah. geniuses. 
they're comedy geniuses, especially Billy Kay. Like, if you watch, show it. Yeah, if you watch, well, they're trying to add in like catchphrases from those things. Mm. But if you watch, like after they get after they get eliminated from the Rumble, Kathy Kelly is back there, and Billy Kay is just a comedic master to the point where she's breaking Peyton Royce. Peyton Royce can't keep a straight face during all this time because Billy Kay is just a comedic tornado going through there. And, and yeah, I mean, there, there's brilliance on WWE.com. It's just none of it ever makes it to the makes it to the main show, so it doesn't get that widespread. It's because they don't. So, like the Iconics or the twenty four seven title stuff, the online stuff for that is amazing. Yeah. Then when they do the segments on the TV on the TV shows, it's cringeworthy a lot of the time because it's so wooden and scripted, and it's not what's getting over with people on the online sections. And it's, and it's so broad. Their their comedy tastes on the main roster are so broad that everybody's already at the punchline for the most part before they even get there. Like, I mean, and there's nothing wrong with that sometimes either. Like the Jim Cornette birthday cake skits in Mid-South and the NWA, you knew his face was going into the cake. You just didn't care at that point. It can be done well if it's broad, but at the same time, you're just like, and the WWE, like you're way ahead of every heel turn there is because you, you see the signs yeah. or the or it used to be the guy grew facial hair. It's like, oh, he's turning heel. Um, <laughs> you know, you're they just lack ahead. subtlety, don't they? Yes, they, they, there is no subtlety because they want it to be easy access. And I think, I do think they have contempt of, of, of their audience in some ways. There, there's, a, there's a line that the, that the, and this is, again, I'll go back to my, my improv training. There's a line and a philosophy that uh, if you treat the audience like poets and philosophers, that's what they'll become. In other words, don't talk down to your audience. Talk, assume that they are competent and assume that they are smart people. And they will follow you on this ride, you know, as long as you can take them. And that's that's my major problem with WWE is that, I, like, I I have to review it every week, and they, they a lot of people just say, well, just turn your brain off, and just stupid. I go, why would I want to watch something for that long that makes me not want to think or not enjoy yeah. things? And and so it, it's become it's become tough over the years, especially in the last two. To really, like, I, I get my joy out of the shows that they do on the network. You know, the NXTs, the 205 Lives. You know, I'll watch a lot of classic wrestling on there because that's my sweet spot. But main roster stuff, I, you, you just come in and you go, eh, on paper it looks good. Build hasn't been great. See yeah. what happens. You know, you're, you're kind of, all, you're, de- you're defeated and you're setting such a low bar that even mere competency is considered a victory. Yeah, it is a low bar. Um, so just to finish off, uh, Jeff, what is your, I ask all my guests this. Uh, what is your opinion of Bray Wyatt's Firefly Funhouse so far? I think it's gone on about three diff- three weeks too long. I, I hmm. think I think I think they should. I, I to me, it was brilliant for a while because I I, I had booked it myself in my head that it's a war against his subconscious. That, that entire thing, and that was the brilliance of it. You know, especially when they brought out, the about four weeks in, they brought out that pig that was supposed to mm. represent the Husky Harris character. And I just went, and, 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 and the evil Vince McMahon who was telling him to lose weight. 
you know that's yeah. meta that's meta stuff done well and really and the, well. Ram, the rambling rabbit where to go with his rambling promos i thought was quite little genius touch but, as well but here's the problem with it what does it do for bray wyatt's style in the ring and what does it make us want to see from him in the ring it's a fun skit it's a brilliantly written skit skit but it has no right now it has no applicable usefulness for the bray wyatt as a wrestler Mm. you know when he comes to the ring and stuff i mean is he gonna wear the mask is he not is he gonna wrestle a much more hardcore style is he not or is he just gonna do the same moves over and over again and expect goodwill because we've had these wacky funny skits so i I think it's i think they've kept him off of shows because they really don't know what to do with it they found this entertaining thing they don't know how to tie it in to a reintroduction of Bray Wyatt as a wrestler. And that's what's going to be, that's going to be the judge of the Firefly Funhouse is whether or not it made Bray Wyatt an effective wrestling character versus an amusing sketch comedy guy. Well, I think the, one of the, the problems they're having currently, if I was guessing, is that now the, 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 the skits and the, everything's out and he's getting ready to come back. Vince McMahon is involved in what that character does. And I think that's where you're going to see a difference because now it's not just Bray Wyatt's, uh, what he you know is coming up with. It's oh, going to be Vince's vision I, for the character. You wouldn't have seen these sketches on Raw or SmackDown if Vince McMahon was not pleased with them. And if he was oh, no, not no, I know that, but things like that. I just feel as if maybe he'll be more hands-on in terms of, like, maybe Bray's got an idea for where he wants to take it. Yeah. And I just think Vince, you know, Vince, with all the characters, at the end of the day, like you said earlier, if he doesn't see whoever it is at that level or go, I don't see you like that or I don't see you in that, in that way, anything happening. Um, which and is, that's, that's my big worry for him. Oh, no, and, and it, it's it's well-placed because we've seen characters who have been interesting for two weeks or so, and then it's just, it's almost like they're workshopped in the back amongst, like, focus groups and things, and then they come back and they're just vanilla and they've lost everything interesting about them, and you go, wait, what happened to these guys? What happened to this story? What happened to this? It was really cool for a couple weeks, and then either you run the idea into the ground... Or you get rid of it because you go, oh, I don't want that guy getting over. Yeah. Like the Zack Ryder character in, in yeah, many ways. It was like, man, he got over on his own with those comedy sketches. And he was really interesting. He got a big pop when he became U.S. champion. And then John Cena and Kane killed him. <laughs> it's like, yeah. And he never, never managed to get that same momentum after. But then look, look what they did with Matt Hardy again, like we, like we were just saying. You know, that character was with, they, with a huge pop at oh, WrestleMania. I, yeah, I, I still think Dean Ambrose is probably the Rosetta Stone of this because Dean Ambrose in those S.H.I.E.L.D. videos, everybody's looking at him like Heath Ledger and the Joker type of character, which is a fascinating character to be in wrestling. The kind of yeah. the unhinged crazy guy has worked for years. Well, I think that's what they'll do with Bray, actually, is I think that's what they're going to go for, is like a Joker-type thing. But, 
but when they made him when he was going to be eccentric and Vince took eccentric to mean wacky and yeah. started giving him all the prop comic stuff you're just like my god i mean that that's it's funny that it's actually caught on in their lexicon too because i was the guy week 1 on either shake them ropes or fightful where i went it's prop comic dean ambrose yeah what are they doing to this guy saying- and then it just became and then it just became lexicon i was just like Oh crap! <laughs> ruined this guy. Back again, and it, <laughs> yeah, they. I agree. Actually, Dean Ambrose is where they dropped the ball badly because if you think back to when the Shield was together before they broke up the first time, everyone was like, Dean He's Ambrose is going to be your guy. He's going to mm-hmm. be top top. He'll be the one to turn. He'll be the top heel, and then eventually he'll become this sort of anti-hero face when the time's right. But yeah, they it was, didn't want that. It was everybody knew that Roman Reigns was being set up for the babyface thing because on the first time they debuted, he went down his own set of stairs versus the other two guys. Dean Ambrose was going to be the main heel and stuff, and Seth Rollins was the afterthought at the time. And then it just and then Seth's the one that turns heel, and Dean becomes the afterthought. And you're just like, well, that makes sense in Vince McMahon's world right there. <laughs> yeah, in Vince McMahon's world, and I think that is. Uh the perfect way to describe it will it change when he when triple h takes over last question it might um i have my everybody seems to think it's a set thing because he's big on you know harley race and the 80s and rick flair and kind of the old school territory stuff i have my doubts because i think stephanie mcmahon is going to be a big influence on hunter at that time and happy wife happy life I don't want you ruining the way that my father ran this company type of thing. And also I you know what? We don't we know that we know that NXT is run well because it's run like a small independent wrestling territory. And we know that Triple H has a certain hands on quality to it, but we don't know how much creative input Triple H has to that. His instincts could be the same as he was when a wrestler, when he saw a guy like CM Punk and was trashing him in the back to Vince. Mm-hmm. You know, that could be it too. We don't know that his his tastes have evolved necessarily. We don't. We we like to we like to fantasy book that stuff in our heads, but the real answer to this is we won't know until we get there. And you know, whether or not Stephanie has an influence on him, or whether or not he has a vision that he is being very protective of. I mean, Triple H hasn't been able to help his NXT people on the main roster. If you look at Bailey and the Revival and people that were built out of that, you know, and everybody's just watching going, they can't miss with these people. And then yeah. they did. His Actually, influence right now, his, his influence there now, you're just, and you know, how it took so long to get to Becky Lynch. And even when they did that, they lucked into it because they screwed that thing up really bad. And nobody remembers that. Nobody remembers the heel turn no. that wasn't getting over. With her, it's like, oh, see, that worked out. She's the man, and now she's the biggest star in the company. And WWE <laughs> created her. Look at us. And everybody who doesn't remember, like, those bad promos where they wanted her to be a babyface, and she was cutting heel promos on Charlotte. And you're just like, this ain't yeah. working at all. So Don't do it. You, don't, I, you, you can't speculate like this. You think it's going to get better. I am optimistic overall. when he, Because I think he's going to just wipe the slate clean and bring in his own creative people. I do. I think, you know, Kevin Dunn's going to be out and I think it's going to be a different way to storytell in some ways, but you don't know. And you can't say for sure. 
and that's it. It's well, it's uh, it's one of those things you've got to wait, wait and see. And Vince McMahon seems like he's going to go forever and ever. Uh, okay, thank you for joining me, Jeff. I uh, really enjoyed chatting with you. We went over an hour. I was uh, got a bit carried away. Just no uh, talking comedy and wrestling. Uh, tell the people where they can find you on social media. You can follow me on Twitter at CrapGame13, mostly bad jokes and wrestling takes. Uh, you can follow my podcast at it's uh, Shake Them Ropes as part of Voices of Wrestling. Go to VoicesOfWrestling.com for more information. And it can be found on any of your major podcasting applications. On Tuesdays, I, I usually drop something about the main roster, and then Thursdays, Myself and Chris Novembrino and occasionally Rob McCarron drop some knowledge about the uh, network shows, the NXT, NXT UK, and 205 Live. You can occasionally find me over at Fightful, at Fightful.com, doing post-pay-per-view shows. I used to do post-Smackdown shows with one Sean Ross Sapp. I'm usually in there to kind of be the bull in the china shop, make everybody laugh for a bit and get out of there. But uh, mostly, you can follow me at CrapGame13. And uh, tell me if you enjoyed this or not, or if you just thought I sucked. I'll be fine with that. <laughs> yeah cool you can uh, you can find me on twitter at acecaster underscore nation we uh, drop three new shows per week monday wednesday friday all our shows are available at video format at youtube.com slash c ace podcast nation uh audio like the same as shake them up stitcher spotify apple Podcasts, all the usual platforms and uh we will be back for another show very soon. Thanks again to Jeff for joining me and uh, thanks to everyone for watching and listening. See you next time. Cheers. Sports Social Podcast Network.